Chapter Twenty Five of Forest Days by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Five. In one of the anterooms at the Palace of Eltham, on the morning following, sat five gentlemen dressed with extravagant gaudiness, their hair curled and in some instances plaited like that of women, and their persons adorned with innumerable rings and trinkets. Out upon it, bear a blow cried one of them, I will have revenge. How will you seek it, de Margan? asked another, with a bodkin. Nay, nay, let him alone, said the third. He is a man of spirit, and will dare this proud knight to the field. Who will crack him there, rejoined the second speaker, as the king cracks a crawfish? How is that? inquired the first. Between his finger and thumb, replied the other. "'This is all nonsense,' joined in one who had not yet spoken. "'Mothama is a prisoner and cannot underlie a defiance.' "'De Margam will do better than defy him,' said the fifth personage. "'He knows that there are shrewder means of revenge in his power than that. "'Tell them, De Margam, tell them, and we will all go in with you and bear it out.' "'Aye,' cried Sir Guy de Margam. Those two fair lovers would, I rather fancy, give each other a finger of their right hand rather than have the Earl of Ashby know their secret moonlight meeting in the cloister. Neither would the good Earl much like to have the tale told of his fair daughter showering such favours on this good Lord Hugh. And Allured of Ashby, I have heard, hates these mothamers worse than a cat hates oil. "'A goodly mess of venom if you stir it properly,' observed one of his companions. "'That will I do most certainly,' said the first. "'I wait but the opening of the king's doors to tell the noble earl before the whole court "'that his daughter was somewhat less niggardly of her presence last night to Hugh de Mothama than he dreamt of. "'Then, you see, the old lord will chafe, the king will frown, and Allured de Ashby will be sent for.' "'To do what Guy de Margan does not dare himself,' said one of the gentlemen. "'What might have been the reply is difficult to say, "'for although the personage he spoke to had so much of the better part of valour "'as to refrain from measuring his strength against a man "'so much superior to himself as Hugh de Mothama, "'yet he was by no means without courage "'where it was at all prudent to display it.' but his answer, which seemed likely to be a fierce one, was stopped on his very lips, for the door of the king's chamber opened at that moment, and the well-known William de Valence, Earl of Pembroke, came forth, bearing two or three sealed letters in his hand. "'Sir Guy de Margan,' he said, presenting him with a packet, "'I am directed by the king to command you immediately to set out for Monmouth, where you will open these orders, execute them, and rejoin the court at Nottingham.' You, Sir Thomas Lestrange, will proceed on a similar mission to Chester, and you, Sir Roger de Lyburn, will go on before with these to Derby. Speed, gentlemen, speed, there is no time to be lost. We have tidings of a threatened rising in the north, and the whole court sets out within two hours. Cannot I have audience of the king, my lord? said Guy de Margan, if but for a moment, or with the Earl of Ashby? impossible replied william de valence the king with the earls of ashby mortimer and gloucester and the noble lord of audley is arranging with the prince the measures which are to be pursued 
It is impossible, Sir Guy. So quick, away with you, gentlemen, and see whose spur is sharpest. All was bustle, hurry, and confusion at the court of Eltham during the rest of the morning. The threatened risen in Northumberland was indeed not of a very serious nature, and Edward was of opinion that the few nobles who were about the court, with such troops as he could muster rapidly by the way, would be sufficient to overawe the malcontents and nip the revolt in the bud. Henry, however, ever fond of excitement and display, seized the pretext for making a royal progress into the north, knowing well that every great noble as he passed, especially in that particular period, would vie with his neighbour in entertaining his sovereign with luxury and splendour. Edward looked grave, and evidently disapproved, but he did not venture to offer any opposition to his father's wishes, and towards two of the clock, in a fine day of the early autumn, preceded and followed by a strong band of soldiery, the whole court, comprising all who happened to be at Eltham at the time, set out on its way towards Nottingham. Although there was indeed more than one horse-litter in the train, yet all the principal personages proceeded on their journey, as usual, upon horseback, and even in their robes of travel they formed a bright and glittering train, as ever was seen, comprising nearly two hundred persons. Laughing, talking, jesting, they rode along, keeping no very compact order, and each person choosing his companions as his inclination prompted, or circumstances admitted. Hudemothema, as may well be supposed, sought the side of Lucy de Ashby, and it quickly so happened that an old knight of her father's household, so deaf that the blast of a trumpet was the only thing he could hear, took upon himself to act as esquire to the lady. In this capacity he occupied the post upon her left hand, talking all the while, and, with the fruitful imagination which many deaf people have, fancying the replies that were never spoken. Immediately behind came the gay girls who waited upon the fair lady, with two or three pages and squires, all occupied with the usual subjects which engrossed the attention of pages, squires, and handmaidens in those days. The Earl of Ashby himself kept near the presence of the king, but he seemed to entertain no objection to the attentions which Hugh was evidently showing to his daughter, and throughout the whole of the progress the Princess Eleanor, with that sympathy which a kind-hearted woman always feels for woman's love, favoured the lovers with opportunity, not indeed with bustling eagerness, nor indeed even apparently, but with the calm and quiet tact of a refined mind, as well as a gentle heart. Edward, too, though more occupied with other things than Eleanor, showed every kindness to Hugh de Mothema, and once or twice in passing him while he was conversing with Lucy de Ashby, marked with a smile the brightness of the lover's eye and certainly gave no discouragement to his hopes. At Huntingdon the young knight was joined by a number of his own servants, and one or two of those who had been attached to his uncle. Amongst the latter was the stout yeoman, Tom Blorkett, and upon questioning him, Hugh discovered that all the tenants and retainers of the old earl were ignorant that their lord had survived the battle. The good fellow was evidently so deeply grieved at the supposed death of his noble master, that Hugh felt a strong inclination to impart to him the fact of the Earl being safe, and very reluctantly refrained in the belief that it might be contrary to his uncle's wishes so to do. 
money and horses reached him at the same time and he was now enabled in all things to resume the appearance of his rank and station health too and strength were every day coming back more and more and though the prince's surgeon at eltham had shaken his head and prognosticated that the wound on his breast would never heal completely till he could obtain perfect repose a certain balm that hugh carried with him the balm of happiness had closed it before he reached huntingdon and had left nothing to be desired but the recovery of his former vigour thus as the reader may believe the progress to nottingham was a joyful one to hugh de mothimer he bore his sunshine with him and mingled willingly in all the sports and pleasures prepared for the royal entertainment it would be tedious to tell all the little incidents of the journey to describe the pageant at this castle the banquet at the other the tournament that was prepared in one town the grand procession that met the monarch at the gates of another city suffice it that all was feasting and revelry merry-making and rejoicing and the populace even in many of the places which had most strongly adhered to de montford during his days of prosperity now met the monarch whose oppression and exactions he had risen to curb and the prince before whose sword he had fallen with the loudest shouts and most cheerful acclamations such is popularity he who counts upon it for an hour will find that he has trusted it too long and he who relies upon it for support will learn that a bulrush is an oak to it long before the royal party reached the north the news of the king's march and of the gathering together of considerable forces ran on before and as edward has supposed the very rumour crushed the insurrection in the egg but henry still resolved to advance as far as nottingham and promised the earl of ashby to spend some time with him at his castle of lindwell the earl sent on messengers to prepare everything for the monarch's reception and two days before the time named for entering nottinghamshire the party of the king halted in the fair little town of mount sorrel the castle was then in ruins but in the priory below the king the prince and several of the chief nobles in attendance on them found lodging for the night while the rest of the court were scattered in the houses round about the good monks of mount sorrel who since the beginning of the century when the castle was destroyed had managed matters their own way were celebrated for the excellence of their cheer and their refectory certainly displayed for the monarch's entertainment a repast that night which in points of excellence of materials and skill in cookery excelled all that he had met with on the road the hour was late when the king arrived and henry who loved the pleasures of the table sat long tasting all the exquisite meats partridges which had been kept in a mew and crammed with a spoon to make them fat peacocks the flesh of which had been rendered as white as driven snow by the method of feeding them fish brought across the country from the sea and others which had tenanted for years the tanks of the priory nourished with especial care and treated with a stream of running water conducted from the saw river to the pond to render them fresh and healthy together with a thousand other dainties under which the table groaned nor did the king merely continue at the table himself but he contrived to keep all his guests there likewise conversing between the dishes with the prior who knew well how to season meat with merriment and had many a light and jesting tale for the monarch's not very scrupulous ear 
While such things were proceeding at the Priory, however, the rest of the royal party, broken into bodies of five or six, occupied, as we have said, three or four neighbouring houses, besides the small hostelry, making themselves as merry and as much at ease as men can do who care nothing for the comfort of their host, or the report he will make of them when their backs are turned. It was about ten o'clock at night when, in the best room of the inn, three gentlemen were sitting with the relics of their supper still before them, a fat capon and a venison pasty, remaining almost uninjured, the one only having lost a leg in the conflict, and the other having a breach in its wall of not more than a couple of inches in diameter. This fact, however, did not by any means evince that the party had wanted appetite, but merely that various dishes had gone before, leaving no room for anything but wine in the stomachs of the well-fed guests. The red juice of the Bordeaux grape was flowing profusely amongst them, and great was the merriment and uproar going on, when the sound of several horses' feet coming rapidly down the street, and then stopping at the door, called their attention. Whoever were the riders, nothing more was known of their proceedings for several minutes, at the end of which time a step was heard descending the little flight of stairs that led from the road into the parlour, which was somewhat sunk below the level of the ground. "'We can have no more here,' cried one of the gentlemen, starting up, resolved to defend the inviolability of their dining-chamber. "'Whoever it is must find a lodging elsewhere.' But just as he spoke, the door, which was fastened with the happy old contrivance of a pulley and weight, was pushed sharply open, and a man dressed in a riding costume, and muffled in a large loose gabardine above his pawpoint, appeared before them. The one who had been speaking, prepared in a somewhat sharp tone to enforce his objections to the admission of a new guest, but suddenly he seemed to recognise the newcomer, and holding out his hand to him, he exclaimed, "'Richard de Ashby, as I live! Why, who thought to see you here? We fancied that you were with your cousin, Allured, keeping down the men of Westmoreland. At all events you are welcome, though by my life you will find the supper we have left you but scanty, and the wine-barrel not so full as when we began.' Richard de Ashby declared that there would be quite enough of both for him and summoning the host to provide him with fresh wine, he proceeded with his meal, from time to time asking such questions as might best lead his companions to tell him all they knew of what was taking place at the English court. "'Gay doings, I find,' he said, "'gay doings, I find, between Eltham and Leicester. Why, the whole country rings with it.' "'Well, may it ring,' replied the other gentleman. "'Well, may it ring, and rejoice, too,' to see such sights. I have never beheld the light since I followed the court of England, and during all that time, it is true, we have had nothing but civil wars, or the rule of Grim de Montfort, so it is no wonder things have gone sadly. They will be merrier now, I trust, said Richard de Ashby. It is high time, however, that my own affairs should go a little more merrily, and surely I have every right to expect it, for to me the prince owes his liberty, ay, and to me they owe the first seeds of dissension sown amongst the Montford's people. It is but fair that my claims should be heard. On oh, my life, cried the gentleman to whom he spoke, while Richard de Ashby filled himself a cup of wine and drained it off. On oh, my life, our good king and prince seem fonder of their enemies than their friends. 
Here is this young Mothama, one of the chief favourites of the court. A malevolent scowl passed over the dark face of Richard de Ashby, but as the host was coming in at that moment with more wine, he remained silent, hewing the meat before him with his knife, but without tasting it. When the landlord was gone, however, he composed his countenance and exclaimed with an affected laugh, "'A pretty favourite, indeed, but tell me what bright ladies follow the court. I hear there never was a fairer train.' "'You have heard true, Sir Richard,' said the same gentleman, who had hitherto spoken to him, the others being busily engaged in a conversation of their own. "'You have heard true. A bevy of lovelier dames has seldom been seen.' There is the Countess of Pembroke, and Mortimer's wife, and she is ugly enough, heaven knows. Then there is the young lady de Ver, and Lord Audley's daughter, and chief of all, you de Mothamer's lady-love, your fair cousin, Lucy de Ashby. There was a certain touch of malice in his tone as he spoke, for it is wonderful how soon men discover any weak point in their fellow men, and still more extraordinary how much pleasure they derive from saying things that may give pain to others, without producing the slightest benefit whatever to themselves. Perhaps the courtier, Sir Harry Gray, who now spoke with Richard de Ashby, had in view to provoke him to one of those outbursts of passion which to our corrupt hearts generally afford matter of merriment rather than commiseration, but if he did so he was disappointed. A momentary expression of intense wrath convulsed the features of Richard de Ashby, but he uttered not a word in reply. He paused thoughtfully, filled another cup of wine, but did not drink it, gazed down upon the edge of his knife, and then turning round to his companion said, "'How warm it is! How can you all sit here with the casement closed?' "'The boys of the village were staring in,' answered Sir Harry Gray, looking at us like wild beasts in a cage, so we were forced to close the casement and draw the curtain. They are gone now. You can open it. But you do not tell me what you think of this coming alliance. He is very wealthy, handsome, renowned. We all think it will answer very well. Do you? said Richard de Ashby dryly. Why, I rather think, Sir Harry, it is no business either of yours or mine although, to speak the truth, I believe you are mistaken, and that there is no such alliance toward. "'Oh, but it is the talk of the whole court,' cried the other. "'He is ever with her, or with the Lord of Ashby, and, besides, the Earl has been known to say—' And he went on to repeat some twenty rumours of the day concerning the marriage of Hugh de Mothama and Lucy de Ashby, not one of which contained a word of truth.' Still, however, Richard de Ashby remained unmoved, at least to all appearance, and after merely asking who else was at the court and receiving a somewhat lengthened answer, giving him the names of fifteen or sixteen ladies in whom he had no interest whatsoever, he arose, saying, "'I must to bed, for I depart at daybreak to-morrow.' "'What, do you not visit the king?' demanded one of the other gentlemen, who had not yet spoken. "'No, no.' replied he. I go on to Nottingham to meet him. I have business of importance. Good night, good night, and he left the room. You galled him, Gray, said Sir Andrew Geary. You galled him hard about that marriage. I know I did, answered Sir Harry Gray. Once let me know a man's folly, and I will pink you him to the quick. 
if his skin be as thick and hard as a German gambasoon. Not that he thinks of marrying fair Lucy himself, but it is his hatred to the Mothamers touches him. Faith, you're mistaken, rejoined Sir Andrew Geary, who was one of those keen-sighted men who seem intuitively to see other men's motives under whatsoever specious disguises they may endeavour to conceal them. Faith, you are mistaken. This Richard de Ashby is one of more ambition than you believe. He knows right well that in the many accidents of the day the good Lord Alurid may find his way to the kingdom of heaven, and then, though he be now but the poor kinsman, treated not so well as many a worthy retainer of the house, he becomes heir presumptive to the title, though to none of the lands except the small estate of Ashby. It would suit him but little to see Hugh of Mothomer, as the husband of the heiress, sweep up the whole wealth of the house. What he will try, added Sir Andrew, musing, I do not know, but be sure he will do something to break the marriage, if there be any truth in the story at all. Then Mothomer will cut his throat, replied Sir Harry Gray, and there will be an end of it. But now what say you to the dice, Geary? Let us try a cast or two. Not I, answered Sir Andrew Geary. I am not in the mood. I am not well to-night, and shall betake me to my rest. I will throw with you, Gray, cried a young man from the other side of the room. Geary's wings are drooping like a sick hen's, don't you see? So let him go and carry himself to the Isle of Pipkin, and seek some stewed prunes for his queasy stomach. I am with you till cock-crow, if your purse be long enough, and the wine good. End of chapter 25